Huntsville in History uncovers the stories of Huntsville, Alabama, the first city of the state and the site of the region's oldest archives. Based on court cases and primary sources of the time, historian John O'Brien and co-host Ben Job guide you through the bizarre, surprising, and sometimes deeply troubling records that make up Huntsville's history. I feel like you're about to do like a cult intro. <laughs> be like, join us today on Huntsville Inn. Because the sunglasses yeah. just gets you a big mis- <laughs> the, Sponsored by the FBI. Yeah, my wife calls me the Unabomber a lot. <laughs> What? That's the, that's the most <laughs> interesting nickname for a spouse I've ever heard of got to say. Well, alright, because like... It, was there a story behind that? Well, so I wear a hoodie and I've got these sunglasses <laughs> on all the time. Mainly because the world is really bright, especially right now with these like lamps you've got on the ceiling. And then, Burning. bam. And also the mustache... <laughs> Yeah, people can't see it, but I, I do. I look like I look like the Unabomber just left a buffet, like just a lot of biscuits. And I talk about trees a lot, and like people don't remember that Ted Kaczynski was really into like nature and the destruction of the industrialized world. I'm not mm. so much into the second part, but yeah, yeah, nature for, yeah, yeah. And so my wife will just be like, "What's up, Unabomber?" And um. Then you tell y'all are tight, though, you know. So yeah, then we make each other breakfast, and that's uh, oh, there you go. Fix yeah. <laughs> that's that's the day. So, Unibarmer, what you got on history today? I'm gonna move, I'm gonna move your mic because that's like when we were talking about getting obsessed over stuff. That's me, too. Just gotta get all up in this biz. Yeah, you move the mic an, an inch, it's it's so much better now. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the clarity. Um, so today. Yeah. On Hunt's Villain. On Hunt's Villain. The most famous abolitionist out of Huntsville, Alabama. Pretty pretty much the only one. So Really? Yeah, there was it was not I mean, yeah. there, there were, like, a lot of Southern Unionists in mm-hmm. Alabama, but a lot of them were like, maybe if we stay in the United States, we'll be able to keep our slaves. Dun, dun, dun. And, no. So, wh- who we're going to talk to about... That was dumb. Who we're going to talk about today is James Gillespie Bernie. We're going to talk about Bernie. Feel, feel the burn. <laughs> feel the 19th century burn. It's quite different. Yeah. Than, than the most recent burn. Very different. Very different. Um, so we're going to talk about James G. Bernie. And one of the really interesting things for me is I've wanted to talk about this guy for a while, mm. but I haven't felt like a little duck call right there i haven't <laughs> felt like i needed to because i've already done work on him mm. i wrote the um i wrote the encyclopedia of alabama entry All for right. this guy i got paid 50 dollars for it too so if you know a lot about very niche alabama topics you can make 50 dollars from hey yeah that's dinner um <laughs> So yeah, I wrote the Encyclopedia of Alabama entry on this guy like back in 2014, mm-hmm. along with Susanna Lieberman, who was the Madison County archivist at the time. Okay. And so we basically just went, read a few biographies, and kind of like did some work on the guy. And so I was like, it's done. The 
Tell me about like writing that because that seems, I mean, it seems interesting. What about working? Have you done a lot of work with like another author and uh, like work together a lot? Not particularly. Mm -hmm. Um, With Lieberman, I was, I was an intern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe not that year, but a little bit previously up there. And so she and I knew each other fairly well and we had sort of like, Oh, Hey, I know you're good at this and you're good at that. And by our powers combined, you know, gray nice. skull or whatever, but by the power, anyways, he man reference, I'm gonna shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm not. So <laughs> the podcast is over. <laughs> it was just five minutes Episode long. Done. You know the guy's name. You do the work. Yeah. You, you, why you, don't you do it? You stay up until 1 a.m. reading biographies. <laughs> How about that? No, please don't. Then I wouldn't have anything to... Um, so, yeah. I knew Susanna, uh, Susanna Lieberman, and so we just kind of worked together, and she was like, hey, they had reached out to me, and mm-hmm. because I'm like the local guy, they wanted me to do... Or the local person, they wanted me to do this. And she was like, but... I know you also are trying to get started and are mm-hmm. an okay writer. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I went through a bunch of different iterations of writing it and going back and reading it. Now there are some things that I have questions about mm-hmm. or like things I'm not too sure of. Um, and then also just, I don't know. I referred to like, a lynch mob in Jackson County as like a really effective group of vigilantes because they were chasing down counterfeiters. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, that's what, and you used to just have lynch clubs in a County. Oh my gosh. And so they would just go and, uh, I think the term Who's on the docket today. Yeah. I think the term evolved over time because in reference to, what happened there, it was literally just mob violence per, uh, perpetuated upon one person. Mm-hmm. And so there was a guy who came to James G. Bernie and was like, I would like to sue this lynch club because they lynched me. And it's like, it wasn't the full hanging. It was more like a public humiliation right, beating right. Mm-hmm. for, yeah. And so... I didn't like. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't parse that out enough in the article. So if someone oh, just yeah. reads it, it comes across pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not. Yeah, and so just you know, little little things like that where I was like, oh, I would like to have added a paragraph. But right, right. Hey, whatever. <laughs> so what? Uh, what about the biographies on this guy? Was there an autobiography or who wrote these things? Um, and maybe like, what's the time frame on them? So if you remember. <laughs> so one of the really interesting things is. Because Bernie is a secondary or tertiary player sort of in the American politics of the time period, a lot of the stuff that's written about him is actually written by his descendants. And Hmm. so there, yeah. So one of the first biographies, right? Because if you were alive in the United States in the 1830s and 1840s and you were politically active, you or were politically knowledgeable, you would have heard of the guy, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like how everyone, most people know who Marco Rubio or mm-hmm. like a secondary or tertiary player is right now, especially since Marco Rubio tweeted that picture of Gaddafi a few days ago. And mm-hmm. it's just like, what do you do? Marco Rubio is crazy. Um, 
what are you doing, Marco Rubio? That's crazy. Please don't do that. <laughs> but, but in 10 years when he's out of office. Yeah. Gosh. Hope it, anyways, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so if you were a politically conscious American in the time period, you would have known who James Bernie was. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because, you know, he ended up going on to be a third party candidate in multiple elections in yeah. 1840 and 1844 for the Liberty Party. Mm-hmm. Um, he ran uh, he ran later on in his life s- several abolitionist newspapers mm-hmm. and was very well connected with the Grimke sisters who were like the other big uh, southern abolitionist folks right so like oh yeah like abolitionism in the united states has often been sort of uh cast as primarily a northeastern sort of Mm -hmm. development and there's even this idea that northeastern political families got into abolitionism less for the moral um the moral aspect of slavery and more to uh, it's it's a theory, but and more to exert their or continue to exert their sort of like dominance on the American political mm-hmm. spectrum. And I don't know if I buy that, but it there is sort of something I feel a little more courageous about someone who grew up in the slave system. Yeah. Suddenly going, oh, God, this is evil and should stop. Mm hmm. And so James Burney and the Grimke sisters, and I might, we might do an episode on the Grimke sisters later. Yeah, it sounds pretty, picking my interest for sure. Yeah, but they, like the Grimkes grew up on like a South Carolina plantation. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, like you can't get a little, you can't get more pro-slavery in the antebellum than Mm -hmm. South Carolina. And they sort of like over time developed the moral compass and were like, slavery is incompatible with Christianity and James Bernie ended up going around down much the same path. And so let's yeah, just something you talked about, like in the, the facts and stuff you sent me was the uh, traveling uh, uh, ministers that were like abolitionists. And that's really interesting to me. It's like, there's a, there was always people thinking of doing, doing moral and ethical like decisions about this and spreading the word. And... Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, the the argument you hear over and over again is like, oh, they were a product of their time. And it's like, okay, well, let's look at their time. And so, you know, you had very famously like the Quaker in the slave pen. Although the Quakers and their relation to slavery is a little mixed because mm-hmm. later on Quakers were like very abolitionist. But in the 18th and into early 19th century, you had famous Quakers. Like one of the early earliest uh anglo-american settlers of florida was a guy named like zephariah i think mm-hmm. is his name uh i forgot the last name but he very famously bought his wife at the age of 13 she was a wow. fancy slave and so a uh, fancy slave was like a young slave woman who had been mm-hmm. groomed and trained for sex slavery it's right. very gross it's yeah, very yeah. Gr- and so like he bought his wife at the age of 13 and moved down to Florida and mm. was just like, I'm going to be weird down here. You know, like it's not, um, yeah. Anyways, James Bernie, enough about that Zephyriah guy. Anyways, <laughs> you so, get so many, you get so many good nuggets though, when you're studying this stuff <laughs> well, and, I mean, I, and I can see how you, well, we talked about, uh, 
I was going to ask you about some more stuff about Henry Clay, and there's, like, all the political parties. There's plenty of, like, oh, stuff yeah. that's not Bernie, all Bernie, but it is related. Well, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the magic of the man mm-hmm. is because it, just by focusing on his life, mm. you have to learn so much about the abolition movement in the United States mm-hmm. and the sort of evolution almost (laughs) yeah absolutely because you went from like in 1792 when he was born kentucky becomes a state Mm -hmm. right and so kentucky's carved out from the western part of virginia right not a lot of people know that (laughs) just cut just cut on out kentucky used to be part of virginia like Mm -hmm. virginia was virginia was virginia west virginia uh kentucky and then, like, the Virginia claims on the Great Lakes. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because, like, all... Scares. Take all this. <laughs> yeah. Like, the early American... The first American colonies, the first layer of American yeah. states, um, just had... Their, their colonial charters were they will stretch from sea to sea. And so, like... Virginia and New York were arguing over who would own what became Michigan, mm-hmm. right? And so you had one of the first things that the United States had to do was be like, all right, these are the borders between states. Yeah, yeah. And so, you you know, you have the very famous example of Vermont seceding from both New York and New Hampshire and being like, we're an independent republic for like a month and now we're a state, right? <laughs> like it was, yeah. So in 1792, James Burney was born in Danville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he was born to a guy named James, Br- like Burney and his wife. Um, and so the Burneys were... Uh, an early sort of like Scottish settler family in Kentucky... And they were well-respected in the early state. They were, um, they were rich. Mm-hmm. They were well-connected. They were wealthy. And they were sort of abolitionists in the sense that they didn't want Kentucky, they didn't want slavery to exist in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. But once slavery existed in Kentucky, uh Bernie's father was like, all right, well, as long as you're a humane slave owner, it's okay if it's within the functions of the law, which is sort of always been, I think, difficult for people to reconcile Mm. or maybe not reconcile, but to recognize that I'm going to take my boots off. It's getting cozy in here. um, But difficult for people to recognize that like, there, I don't like legalistic frameworks, right? Where people are like, ah, I object to this morally, but now that it's legal... Yeah, I'll just do it. Yeah. Still. <laughs> and so, like, that legalistic sort of framework always gets me. Because of, like, mm. if something is good, it should be good regardless of the, the law. laws on it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Bernies were like, well, we're just going to be humane slave owners, mm-hmm. right? And his father would still write stuff about how slavery was evil and this was a pretty common refrain sort of before the 1830s in a lot of the south and slaveholding states which was Mm. um slavery is evil but we're going to do it anyway 
Right. Right. And slavery kind of like transcended just the idea of the South at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have at the when the United States be, first becomes a country, there were some states that had decided to pass like general emancipation bills during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have like Pennsylvania in 1780 is like, we're not going to allow the importation of slaves into the colony anymore. This, that, and the other. And so a lot of people are like, well, Pennsylvania was a free state at the time. And it's like, no, Pennsylvania just said that they were going to restrict the slave trade in Pennsylvania and say that all the new people born will be free. Right. And so the same thing in Rhode Island Right, mm-hmm. Rhode Island used to be one of the largest slave ports in the American co- like Rhode Island used to have one of the largest slave ports in the American colonies. Uh, but people in Rhode Island were like, "All right, we're just gonna have no more slaves brought into Rhode Island, and we're also gonna say all of the people born to slaves will be free mm-hmm. eventually." And so. Yeah, slavery so it was a mi- very much a mix mash of <laughs> yeah there policies were, and there were literally slaves in every American state mm-hmm. except Vermont. Vermont is the only early state where they could come in and be like, Vermont was like, we're gonna secede, declare ourselves, and then, and so when Vermont entered the United States, mm-hmm. it was the only state that it had ever entered that had been like completely untouched by slavery. Wow. Yeah. And fun fact, Vermont had the only uh, black man that was ever elected to a state legislature before the end of the Civil War. Really? Yeah. Uh, Alexander Twilight. Mm-hmm. Right. Famous dude. I mean, should be more famous probably, mm-hmm. but right. So... The Burnies exist in this sort of like 1790s America. When James Burney is born in 1792, like New York is still a slave state. New Jersey is still a slave state. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, New York doesn't pass their sort of like gradual emancipation law until 1799. New Jersey, I think, is like 1804, etc. And it's only like later on that it just becomes slavery is only centered in the South. Mm. Um, and so it did kind of allow this contrast to exist in people's minds. Right. So James Burney, uh, grows up in Kentucky. He's raised primarily by, I think his dad's sister Mm -hmm. or his mom's, one of his aunts. I don't know if it's maternal or paternal, but she's like straight out of Scotland and she's, Mm -hmm. Uh, very famously of the album straight out of Scotland, (laughs) straight out of Scotland. (laughs) She's really into bagpipe, just bagpipe solo in the background the whole time. Um, rapping about scones and I'm afraid to make any jokes because I'm afraid I'll get Irish, you know, Irish culture and Scottish culture mixed up and then I'll get, you know, I, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) flannel there you go (laughs) wasn't popular in scotland really until the 19th century yeah it's all a lie (laughs) i mean yeah most of what people think is like ancient european culture is like from the 1800s it's like oh we really need to sell some stuff export stuff exactly i mean (laughs) wicca right 
Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, it's an ancient Celtic. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> a guy made that up in Wales. Yeah, he was yeah. running around wearing a cape, waving a wand. He was like, this is fun. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and he grew up around slaves. I mean, yeah, on the on his uh, farm or plantation, or whatever yeah. you would call it. So his father like owned a hemp plantation mm-hmm. in Kentucky, and so and James Burney was given his first slave at the age of six. Wow. Yeah, lifelong friend actually. Uh, guy's name is Michael. Mm-hmm. And was he his same age or? Uh, Michael was, I think, four. Oh, okay. Yeah, so around the same age, mm-hmm. and they they were just you know he was like assigned a playmate, right, right. And you, I've heard about that a lot, like talking with you about historical, like they have they'll twin up, yeah. sort of a slave and a, a free person at the same near the same age, and they just grow up together, and it's just, uh, I imagine that that I can only imagine that that would influence your, like your outlook on things if you've grown up with somebody. Well. For Bernie, it did. For like mm-hmm. James Bernie, it definitely yeah. did. But for a lot of people, they were able to somehow hold in their head the idea that like black people are inferior, but also my closest friend and companion. Right. And, and, um, yeah, it's, yeah just blows your mind (laughs) exactly yeah i mean it does it really does Mm -hmm. blow your mind and i don't know Um, and did did he end up like traveling with him or staying with him for a long time yeah yeah michael michael ended up being like bernie's sort of i mean they the really the relationship always evolves Mm -hmm. so they go from being like we're friends to Oh, okay. We exist in a white supremacist slave system, and mm-hmm. you're now my like coach guy, mm-hmm. and you you're the one that makes sure that I have stuff. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so just sort of like a a body man would Got be. You. Yeah. So when Bernie's about, I think eleven or so. Let me check the notes. Oh yeah. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like to look at their age ranges when I'm looking at these. Exactly. These facts, because uh, got married what at like 24. When when he gets involved in politics, I just like to think about that and be like, what was I doing then? <laughs> look, man, like it was so much easier to get involved in politics <laughs> if you were a wealthy white man at yeah. the time. Like. <laughs> <laughs> the the sort of yeah You're like you are involved in politics <laughs> that's it that was i mean yeah so like when he was 11 he went to transylvania university mm-hmm. and then uh he was there for several years he came back to danville transylvania university is in kentucky by the mm-hmm. way i think we should probably <laughs> this guy was not like in central Spirited europe across the world yeah homeboy was not in romania <laughs> like Transylvania literally just means between the woods <laughs> or like beyond the woods. I never thought about that. Yeah. The word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it just means beyond the woods and it's what a lot it's of the over yonder of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's Latin for over yonder. <laughs> and so like early Kentucky was mm-hmm. called Transylvania. Right. 
and then they eventually adapted Kentucky from like a Shawnee word, which means hmm. like good hunting ground between the rivers. Gotcha. Right. And so I kind of, sometimes I wished that we had kept Transylvania for Kentucky. Right. <laughs> right. Like it's like, <laughs> in, I mean, in parts of Kentucky are still like called Transylvania, just like parts of Mississippi are still called the Yazoo lands. Mm -hmm. And then like in Ohio, you have the Firelands interesting yeah there's like this there's this whole other sort of uh, vocabulary for american places mm -hmm. that we've lost and i i don't like that i think we should have kept them because some of them are great that'd be cool to have a map of like all the uh yeah that'd be epic somebody do it yeah oh man and then like indigenous place names this is just yeah yeah that's what i mean like yeah, like the native uh, native terms for a lot of the regions and well, like the Sioux name for the United States, like the the Lakota Sioux mm -hmm. um, name for the United States translates to something like "people of the long knives." All right, and it's like that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so homeboys in Transylvania at Transylvania University. He come back to he comes back to Danville to go to a Presbyterian school. And then eventually when he's 17, mm -hmm. uh, his dad's like you're going to go to the College of New Jersey. And so he does. He goes to the College of New Jersey. He studies logic and math and law and so that eventually becomes Princeton. Okay. Right? And so he comes back to Kentucky uh, 1816, he gets married. He works on the Henry, Henry Clay Senate campaign. Henry Clay and himself were about the same age mm -hmm. and had grown up in two prominent Kentucky families. And so they considered each other like good friends. Right. And so Henry Clay like would write letters to James Burney where he was like, you're one of my most valued and treasured friends. And, you know, I, you know we're best bros forever right didn't last <laughs> through the 1830s yeah and james politics Bernie. got in the way tore tearing families apart oh yeah <laughs> but he gets elected to the kentucky house of representatives mm -hmm. right so he's in there he's like yes i did it man if i was 24 and i got elected to yeah. alabama i was like yeah but <laughs> So Kentucky House of Representatives, like I said, the bar was a lot lower then, mm. <laughs> right? Um, he he prevents a resolution that would have allowed Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois to cooperate to cooperate on returning escaped mm -hmm. slaves, right? Because even then he had a he had a reputation as being very liberal on mm. the slave issues, right? Mm -hmm. And you know it's like. It's a spectrum. All of politics is a spectrum. And so uh, it got passed the next year anyway. So he managed to only block it one time by just convincing a bunch of people and being like, look, I know Kentucky, a large part of our uh, economy depends upon slavery. If they make it into Illinois, if they make it into Indiana, which by the time at that time, people weren't sure yet if those were going to be free or slave like right. states and territories because we'd yet to have the compromise of 1820 mm -hmm. which was put together by henry clay fun facts yeah yeah it's why maine's a state so it gets passed the next year uh anyway and he's like you know what kentucky 
is just way too into slavery for me. I'm moving to Alabama. <laughs> Which now... The liberal paradise <laughs> of Alabama. I mean, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, at the time, like... At the time, like, Alabama, it was... It was a territory. Yeah, it was still a little bit more. It was a territory. It was in its early phase. Like if you had, he was trying to get it while it was young. Exactly. (laughs) And so you know, raise it, raise it up right. Exactly. (laughs) And so you had like Alabama fever going on, Mm -hmm. where people were complaining that whole parts of North Carolina were getting emptied out because all the poor whites were like, "All right, I'm going to Alabama." Right, right. In that exact tone of voice. So. In 1818, he shows up, he's in Madison County, he's outside of Huntsville at this mm-hmm. time. He's like, I'm going to get a cotton plantation, because that's what everyone's doing. So, we, it's so weird for me that he's like, Kentucky, too much slavery. I'm going to move to Alabama and have a cotton plantation and focus on stopping slavery there. And it's like, bro, you're moving to Alabama and setting up a cotton plantation. Right. But of course, in hindsight, right? Like, we can't... Moves like this, the things mm-hmm. that he did like this, like I said earlier, a lot of the early biographies were written by his descendants. And there is sort of just this, um, like definitely later in life, he was a very staunch abolitionist and he was very, he he was a respectable figure. Mm-hmm. But in his early life, I feel like we should complicate the matters a little bit and being like, oh, yeah. there were parts of slavery one, he was naive about some things. Mm. And two, there were parts of slavery that at first he was okay with. And that's sort of like mm. the complexity. Kind of like the states were so wishy-washy on there. Exactly. It's like, was... oh, you're going to get free eventually. Exactly. And maybe your second daughter will be free. Exactly. But you're, yeah. But for now. So, I mean, yeah. And... He did reflect his time. I don't like Mm. saying a product of his time because there were still, you know, there were abolitionists who were like, this should stop immediately. Mm -hmm. But I I feel like there is kind of like a difference. Oh, yeah, definitely a gradient there. Yeah, between people who were like, we should excuse all ills because Mm. it was the past and saying he was like this because of this in the past. Right, right, right. I didn't want people to come back and be like, ha, you're a hypocrite. It's like, all right, only a little. Um, <laughs> so his his plantation does not mm-hmm. do well. So one, in his own diaries and the writings of his friends, they're like, he was just too nice to the slaves. Right? Right. Uh, which is probable. Mm. You know, he's coming from like, a smaller plantation that produces hemp and hemp is a much easier crop than cotton because cotton requires like intense agriculture 11 months out of the year, mm-hmm. like pretty much December. Like you get Christmas off. You're like, yeah, this was great. Um, and intense grueling labor. Exactly. From a lot of people. Exactly. Cotton. Yeah. Like the United States could not have become the world's largest producer of cotton without slave labor Mm. and like the fact that we could produce the most cotton allowed us to industrialize and that industrialization made our economy bigger and fed the financial sector Mm -hmm. and it's like a lot of 
the moves that the U.S. was able to make in the later 19th century to where in 1890 we become the largest economy on the planet, and we've done that until now, mm-hmm. were built out of these like very oh, early yeah. awful evil conditions. So he and he was also gambling, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah. So he was <laughs> a lawyer. He was a cotton planter and. He was a gambler and like gambling over cards was officially illegal, but no one was there to stop the horse races. So like all of Put the a bunch of rich white guys at the horse races, that's, you know, exactly. that's totally different yeah, than like... like dudes in the bayou playing <laughs> cards. That's totally different things. I mean, we had that whole episode where I was talking about like the early police force and yeah. they rolled up on those two dudes and they were all, well, a bunch of people, and they were all gambling, and then yeah. two guys attacked him with swords. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, op- like, rich white guys betting on horses was not a huge deal. Right. To them. But yeah. what poor white people did with their spare time had to be very close very, to Yeah, yeah, we had to crack down on that. And so he lost a lot of money. Mm. And so he's losing money. His plantation's not turning out any money. He's a lawyer in Hun- mm-hmm. he does practice law in and around Huntsville. And so that's kind of like he's making a little bit there. Mm-hmm. But eventually he gets like very, very close to financial ruin mm. and is just like, you know what? I don't think Jesus wants me to gamble. Mm. And so like completely Did he write that? Did you have any letters of him? Oh, making just, that turn or um, just around this time period, he's like, you know what? Because he was always very religious mm-hmm. too, right? Uh, super religious. Yeah, we didn't talk about that either. Yeah, very religious. His family's Presbyterian. Uh, the upper crust in Huntsville at the time were more Anglican, and so you know, hmm. there's a few mentions in some of the early biographies about maybe life would have been easier if he was an Anglican. It's like his his life was pretty. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he was he was a rich white guy in Alabama right, in right, the eighteen twenties. Right. Like he mm-hmm. was fine for right then, um, but he was always very religious. So the fact that like he nearly lost the family home, yeah, and very nearly had to like, you know, he came close to like having to break up like the families of these slave people that have been with him for most of his life. Mm. And so he was like, oh, right. I should really fix this. (laughs) My actions have consequences. So he actually goes and takes out loans and focuses just on. um, And that's another thing he talks about is he's like, he didn't want to break up Michael and Mm. other people's families. Yeah. And so he's like, my actions have consequences, goes, takes out loans, uh, starts selling parts of the plantation, etc. So. In 1819, he's actually elected to the Alabama General Assembly. All right. So, but at the same time, the Alabama Constitutional Convention is happening in Huntsville. Mm. And so, and one of the things that uh, when a state is admitted or is about to be admitted, the enacting law that's passed in the U.S. Congress is like, hey this is the place where you have to go write your constitution. And so what ends up happening is 
James Burney is trying to curry favor with a lot of the like rich men in Huntsville and Huntsville Mm -hmm. and Madison County are the most populated areas in Alabama at the time, like by far. Uh, But the Alabama capital is going to be at St. Stephen's. So there's people in South Alabama who are like, clearly the constitution should be written at the capital. And there's people in North Alabama who are like, all the people are up here. Most of the people up here, it should be written here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Bernie goes and writes some letters to like Henry Clay and the other senator from Kentucky, I think who's John J. Crittenden. And is like, y'all should push for it. Y'all should push for it to be Push for my city. Yeah. And so he like calls in some favors mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. like his old Kentucky days. And people are like, oh, really impressed. You mm-hmm. know, they're like, oh, look at James Bernie over there. And so. He gets to go and, like, hang out and help them write the Constitution a little bit. Nice. So he's not in the Constitutional Convention, but he was a valuable aide. It was a quotation uh-huh. about him. I was well, I mean, sure, all, all the lawyers were up there. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine there was just a, billions of them, so. Yeah, Huntsville had the most lawyers, mm-hmm. like, just an inordinate amount. Like, the early cities, <laughs> the city's very early history is just dominated by lawyers, right? And, like, backwoods lawyers, too. So they're just, like... <laughs> coming out of the like there's a reba mcintyre song about them right like they're, like they're just coming That's out amazing. of the woodwork <laughs> and you know i like, took you very literally there it's so like there's a reba mcintyre <laughs> song about 19th century alabama lawyers no no i'm talking about the night the lights went out in george <laughs> we're in it she's like don't trust no backwoods southern lawyer All right sheriff who you know <laughs> i was like damn reba's going back <laughs> yeah turns out reba mcintyre really into the reba mcintyre staying on staying on for topic so, like Reba, Mac, one of my favorite things about Reba McIntyre, mm-hmm. because everyone's always like, "Ah, oh, rap music is so bad and yeah. country's more wholesome." She has a song about child prostitution that, like, and everyone yeah. forget, everyone forgets that fancy is a thing, right? Yeah, but I don't know. That's <laughs> that's just something I get into like arguments with people with about right, a right. lot, and they're like, "Rap's bad," and I'm like, one of my favorite country singers has a song about. Like teenage hookers. Yeah. The stuff goes down, guys. Yeah, I mean, the like, stuff goes down. Country in the '90s was a lot better. Um, <laughs> we can all agree on that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so he. So yeah, and I was re- yeah, and the segment he got this added to the Constitution. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So the section specifically that he pushed for was any person who shall maliciously dismember or deprive a slave of the life of life shall suffer such punishment as would be inflicted in case the like offense had been committed on a free white person and on the like proof, except in case of insurrection of said slave. So except for the little addendums at the very end, like it's almost just like one-to-one Yeah, here, have some rights like free white people. And so there had been something done very previously like this in Georgia, mm. but Georgia also at, threw some addendums on there and they were like, unless it was an accident, 
Yeah, unless you say it was an accident. Unless you say it was an accident. And so there's a lot of instances of Georgia being like, it was an accident. Right. I murdered this person on accident. 90% of the time it was an accident somehow. Yeah, well, more or than more. That. Yeah, yeah, 100% of the time, maybe. But um, in the case of, like, Alabama, th- that addendum isn't there. Mm-hmm. And then also in 1819, uh, he managed to get past a thing called an act concerning the trial of slaves, which guaranteed a court-appointed attorney to any slaves standing trial for for anything above petite larceny. Mm. So just in Mississippi, slaves could only get a court-appointed attorney if they were accused of murdering a white person outside of a slave revolt. Wow. So anything else, like if you, if you're on your own, pretty much at the mercy of the justice, exactly the quote unquote justice system. Exactly. And so in Alabama, there was the, it was, yeah, it was, I think we were one of the only States Mm -hmm. that had this. And so court appointed attorney for anything above like petty theft. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously obviously one most people aren't going to try and sue a slave Mm. or a slave owner they're just going to viciously attack them two like I've, i've seen one i've seen one case where a slave was like accused of a crime and got the full due process of law really in all of mm-hmm. like in all of antebellum sort of Madison County. Mm-hmm. I would love to have the time and resources to go and look at maybe like Wilcox County or like some other counties that haven't not Wilcox, Washington County and like other counties that haven't had uh courthouse fires. That'd be mm-hmm. pretty neat. Oh yeah, yeah. You might find some really good stuff there. Yeah, see if there are other ones, mm-hmm. but like, yeah. So we've got the one. So, and yeah, not a great record. Yeah. Well, James G. Bernie ended up being the court appointed attorney. Really? In that <laughs> one. So he, yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. That was, it was kind of fun. Um, finding that, finding well, he out of, that he, he passed sh- the law. Kind of shows up in his own circles. Yeah. With Henry Clay later on, too. So. Yeah. So we have that. And then in 1819, uh, Andrew Jackson is touring Alabama. And and so he's courting people and he's basically laying the groundwork for a presidential run in like 1824. No. Which he did not get. He didn't win. Mm-hmm. Corrupt bargain, etc. whatever. But so Andrew Jackson is touring the old Southwest. So like Alabama, Mississippi and basically like shaking hands and people love this guy in Alabama because Andrew Jackson, like there had been the red stick war. You gotta, you gotta give me that. You gotta cut me some slack on the red stick war. The red stick. Tell me about the red stick war. (laughs) The red stick war was a Creek civil war. Gotcha. Which grew out of the war of 1812. Mm. Oh, okay. Which 
I mean, really, the War of 1812 was part of the Napoleonic Wars mm. back in Europe, right? But, um, so yeah, Andrew Jackson came to Alabama, got a bunch of, like, Creek allies and white men, etc., and went up against the Red Sticks. Gotcha. And the Red Sticks were following the prophet Tenskatawa, who was a Shawnee prophet, who was like, we're going to rise up and drive the whites mm-hmm. out. And so, like, the Shawnee were trying to put together sort of, like, a native confederation of all these different peoples. Because, like, I mean, Shawnee, like... There's a lot of tribes, a lot of languages. Yeah, and, like... You know, like, the Creek language is a Muscogean language. It's related to Chickasaw and Choctaw and all that. And the Shawnee language is not a Muscogean language, but they had spent centuries communicating with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... It's Algonquin. I'm pretty sure it's Algonquin. Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't know. Because <laughs> Cherokee is Iroquoian, so it's more related to the language that was spoken by the like Tuscarora and Onondaga people up in New York. You've been getting into a lot of that. I've seen <laughs> in your stuff on. Yeah, I've been trying to learn Chickasaw. Uh huh. But what are some interesting like points on that language? Like, are the is the grammar and stuff pretty uh, out there, or is it pretty pretty straightforward? It's uh, it's it's agglutinating, which <laughs> I'm allergic. Sorry, I can't. Uh... <laughs> I can't speak glutenated leg twitches. It is actually it is actually related to the word gluten. And it just what? means to stick together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um So you can cram it's like German where you can just cram similar, yeah. I think it's like that a would four car pile up of words and it's just like it's an ambulance. It's yeah. Long. So like Oh gosh. The word hot seat now. So if you want to talk about like I also want my umbre- umbrella. Mm-hmm. It's like Ishtilo Shantika Chi Akugya Savana. Right? And so it's just like this really, like, Ishtilo Shantika Chi is like umbrella. And I think it means something around the, long, around the lines of you will not get wet yeah. in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> Specific. Yeah. Yeah. So Chickasaw, it's, uh, you, you take like a root verb and then you just tack like, different is there like a negative and positive like uh connotation on the verbs like you can say like a it's like saying sexual or asexual kind of thing or well yeah so agglutinating so that's a morpheme a morpheme is the smallest unit of language that carries Uh. a meaning it's the smallest sound in a language that has meaning and so it's awesome yeah so glad we do this podcast yeah (laughs) and so english how we work most of our morphemes are words mm. and agglutinating languages. They take a lot of morphemes and use those to, with very complex verbs to make new words. Wow. And so agglutinating languages are a subset of languages called synthetic mm-hmm. or from a subset of the languages called synthetic. And so you see agglutination happen in a lot of places on the planet, North American native languages, like almost all of them are agglutinating. Eastern and Southern Africa, mm-hmm. almost all the languages are agglutinating. So like Swahili, Zulu, Osa, all agglutinating. Mm-hmm. Japanese, agglutinating. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, actually a very common way for humans to understand and view the world. Mm-hmm. Is just like, 
I'm just going to take all these different And so, like, Chickasaw is fun. Oh, yeah. But anyways, Red Stick War, Tenskatawa, <laughs> yes. Shawnee Prophet. If you know about Tecumseh, he was Tecumseh's brother. Mm. And so, like, their mom was actually Creek. The Shawnee and the Creek mm. people had a long history of, like, intermarriage. Yeah. And, like, talking to each other, even though, like, one spoke an Algonquin language and one spoke Muscogean. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they, like, learn everyone was multilingual. Right. Um, And so the Creeks, a portion of the Creeks were like, we're going to be part of this confederation of natives that drives white people out of the interior of the United States. And so they rose up and they were supported by the British and they were giving them guns mm-hmm. and people were terrified. And, um... So Andrew Jackson rolls in. There was like the Fort Mims massacre in South mm. Alabama where Creeks broke into a fort and like killed all the white people inside. And so it ends up with like the Battle of Burnt Corn, Battle of Horseshoe Bend, etc. Uh, destroys the Red Sticks. And then Andrew Jackson's like, all right, now we're just going to seize all of the Creek lands. And so like the red stick war was also like a Creek civil war. Mm -hmm. And so the Creeks that had sided with the U S government are like, what? Yeah. Uh, We know those guys. We, we, I'm in your army. uh, You can't just take my house. And Andrew Jackson's like, I'm going to take your house. (laughs) Do you know how they, did they have defections and like, I mean, later much about, or was it just like there, there were uprisings yeah. later mm-hmm. by in like the 1820s and 1830s mm-hmm. with from Creek Remaining villages Creek, yeah. that had sided with the U.S. And but then after like Jackson's betrayal, they were like, you just can't trust him, which is right. a very reasonable thing yeah, to say. Definitely. Yeah, like. And yeah, none of them that were uh, working with the white dudes uh, came out on top there. Yeah. Like, like the very British few. didn't help us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, in 1819, all of this is fresh on people's minds. Yeah. There had been, like, this massive native uprising. There, And then, of course, you know, Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans had stopped the British from taking over, like, the most important American port that existed and, like, mm-hmm. taking the Mississippi River. And so there was a resolution where they were like, we're going to make Andrew Jackson. Uh, and also he had just gotten Florida from the Spanish because mm-hmm. he had just gone and like invaded Florida briefly for no reason. <laughs> and it'd been like, it's ours now. We just did it. And the Spanish were, we're like, on a roll. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how like, that's how, <laughs> that's how most of the Gulf coast happened. Yeah. Like in 1813, some dudes in Alabama literally went to mobile, like a mm-hmm. general with, forces went to mobile and was like this is america now mm-hmm. and the spanish were like all right and so you know jackson had done all this stuff he was super popular uh the alabama state house is like we're gonna pass a resolution saying that we endorse jackson for president mm-hmm. the entire state of alabama endorsed and uh james g bernie was like no right And so he got up and gave a very reasonable speech where he was like, Andrew Jackson straight up just kills people for no reason Mm -hmm. and has like executed a bunch of white men all over the place. Like he executed some British people in Florida, Mm. stuff like that. Just went and hanged him. And he's like ill-tempered and not fit to lead. 
And people are like, I don't think you should be elected again. Yep. And so he never gets elected to another, like, state-level office. Um, He does, upon his return to Huntsville, become the solicitor Mm -hmm. for the Fifth Judicial Circuit. So he's like a prosecutor for the state of Alabama, Hmm. in North Alabama. Um, He actually gets elected to the, like, Board of Trustees. So, like, the early city council, mm-hmm. aldermen, all that. And this is this is where you start seeing um, some of the stuff. I'm just like, eh. So, some of the uh, biographies said that he was mayor of Huntsville. Hmm. But, like, Huntsville didn't have a mayor until 1916. Right. So, he would have been, like, president of the board. So, he yeah. was president of Huntsville. The he head was, of the council. Yeah. And they'd like had a new head of the council every mm-hmm. year or so. <laughs> right, right. So if you were on the council long enough, you were, you were yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You were president of the, the council. Um, so etc. But yeah, yeah. You said he got in, involved with the laws. Yeah. So he's in Huntsville. Uh, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to sell the plantation. I'm going to move into the city. So he moves into Huntsville with his wife and Michael's family. So Michael, uh, two daughters, son, and Michael's wife. Um, And he starts tackling, like, pollution in the big spring. He's like, look, that's our water. Quit peeing in the spring. Yeah, quit peeing in the spring. It's a big one. He's like, that's our water source. You can't really pee in there. Um, here's a $5 fine right. for slaves that peed in the spring, uh, a hundred lashes. So it's like, all right, you couldn't just, Ooh. you couldn't just find their owner $5 or something. Yeah. So etc. Well, not etc. but he gets involved in trying to set up public education in the city, which mm-hmm. is popular at first. So, you know, there's like a school. It's founded, um, he tries to outlaw alcohol because he's part of the early temperance movement. That is not popular. Mm. People are like, come on. It's the 1820s. You want to teach our kids to talk good, okay, but don't take my booze. <laughs> They're going to be drunk when they do it. <laughs> They're going to be drunk. They're um, not working. <laughs> They're drunk. Yeah. And then, so there is uh, also later in 1823... Some people claim that he helped found the Huntsville Library Company Hmm. and the Huntsville Library traces their history to 1818. And so I think it is just another it's an example of someone who did a lot of good stuff. If you get big enough, people will start just attributing a bunch of stuff to you that other folks did. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that Winston Churchill. It's like Winston Churchill. Who, let's be honest, had five good speeches, mm-hmm. and then every funny quip from then on, people were like, Winston Churchill said that. It's like, no, he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in the, if he's in the room, he might get credit for something kind of thing. Exactly. Or like, if it happened around that time, people were like, well, you know, no one was as smart as that guy. It's like, people were. <laughs> <laughs> there was other smart smarties. There were other people doing things. Gosh. <laughs> And so he's just involved in sort of the state, well, not state, but the city politics of Huntsville Mm -hmm. for quite some time. He's still a solicitor. Uh, He's still running around. Uh, While he's a solicitor is actually when he went 
and sued that lynch club in Jackson County. Okay. Yeah. We don't have the exact year, but it's between like 1823 and 1826. So I wanted to pick your brain about the like public education thing. Yeah. And well, I know like churches were involved in education for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you know much about like public education? Was that a first for the, for Alabama or is, was that, do you know much about that? I know I'm just randomly being like, tell me all you know about this one subject without any preparation, but so it's really interesting to me. Public education was actually sort of enshrined into law in Mm. the United States with the early ordinance laws, Mm -hmm. which said that all land that was going to be sold had to be divided into parcels of like 30 or 32 plats. Mm -hmm. And every 16th. And so these parcels were like one square mile. Mm. Right. And so every 16th one was reserved for a school. Huh. Yeah. So if you go and you look at like old maps of cities, they're all squares. Mm-hmm. Right. There's not like an organic sort of city that grows. They're all squares. And the 16th one. <laughs> and every, and you always see like, like old plat maps, you have people writing in like, okay, this guy owned this section of this part mm-hmm. and then you'll sometimes have like native villages are part of the plats mm-hmm. and you'll have like, and there's a river running through the middle of it. And then 16 right there, bam, it's reserved. Now it can mm-hmm. either be reserved for a school or the selling of that 16th plat can go towards financing a school in one of the other ones. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. But that one was always, and so that's interesting. Man. Yeah. And so early early america there was sort of uh early the early republic period there was very much this Mm -hmm. idea that okay well maybe states shouldn't be involved in schools but maybe the local community should so like the town would run the school Hmm. and yeah that's that's pretty cool because uh i mean it's just something you don't even think about being like back in the day, it was like, oh yeah, we always have a public place. Like all the kids are always going to this one spot. Yeah. No, of course not all of the kids. Yeah, would yeah. Go. All the white landowning kids, I guess, kind of thing. Yeah. Like. Yeah, all, all the white kids. Not even all the white kids, but we do have this idea of you know people in the past were illiterate or stupid, etc. Right. But in the United States. They were way more likely to be literate mm. than anywhere else in the world. That's cool. Up mm. until the rise of like public education in mm-hmm, other parts. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the U.S. and then Germany and then like France and England. Because the Germans were also trying to make a nation. And so what the Germans were doing was like, we're going to have a kindergarten, which is mm-hmm. where we got the idea. Right, right. Uh, or like an infant school and we're going to start instilling the virtues that we think are important in a society from a very young age and Mm so yeah so oh gosh public education (laughs) we're back he was like he was a solicitor in huntsville yeah and he started working on it looks like throughout 1827 uh did he work on this legislation to prevent like import of humans, slaves? 
Yeah, or, so you know, what's that about? Some of his biographies claim that there was an 1827 law called to prevent slaves from being brought into the state as merchandise. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them claimed that it passed. I have not seen with an 1829 repeal. Mm-hmm. So just like a 16 month period. Right. <laughs> where it was like very difficult, you know, to like import slaves into Alabama. And the idea was based off of what I was talking about earlier with like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania mm. and New York, mm-hmm. where instead of immediate emancipation, they just kind of starved the slave trade mm. until like human freedom occurred. Um, so I have no doubt that he wrote a bill called mm. that. And introduced it to his remaining friends in the Alabama state legislature. I have no doubt of that. Yeah, yeah. Whether it was effective or in effect or... Yeah, I have just not seen it being passed. Yeah. Now, that's because it is actually pretty... It can be difficult to find some of the older Mm -hmm. laws just online. So if I went down to Montgomery or I called them, I might be able to get like a, oh, hey, did -hmm. this happen? And then was there enforcement sort of thing? Oh, yeah. And that would be... The the whole other question. Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. Like, in 1808, the United States outlawed entirely the importation of slaves from Africa. It Mm -hmm. carried the death penalty. But guess what? Right. People were still like, oh, I can make money and bring folks in. Mm -hmm. And so you had like in coastal South Carolina and Georgia, when Union troops showed up, there were, you know, there were people that were like, yeah, I was I was born in Africa, you Mm -hmm. know, in, in like their you know, in their teenagers, they're in their twenties and they're like, I still speak Yoruba. And then of course you had the Clotilda, which for those that don't know, in 1860, in 1860, Mm -hmm. the Clotilda sailed into Mobile and it was the last slave ship. It was the Uh. last slave ship into the United States. Mm -hmm. And so it had a bunch of West Africans on it. And five years later, slavery ends and so they just go and found a town outside of mobile called africa town and so they were like african immigrants pretty much Hmm. yeah and so 1827 uh with an 1829 repeal i'll have to double check on that like Mm. i said some of his confirmed (laughs) it's not confirmed and some of his biographers do try and like up his exploits Mm. So, 1828, Squire, uh, that was actually the one case I'd ever found where an enslaved person who was accused of a crime got their day in court. Mm. And so that was pretty cool. And Bernie was there. Yeah, and James G. Bernie was the court. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We could do a whole episode probably on on that one. Yeah, so I won't talk too much about it, but (laughs) it's really neat. No doubt. Oh, yeah. Um, so, and then the 1820s, he meets some people from the American Colonization Society mm-hmm. and cool. So American Colonization Society, this ended up being a really important part of his life and it kind of advanced his views on emancipation. Uh, do you know about Liberia? Mm, not really. Okay. 
So Liberia and Sierra Leone, Mm -hmm. all right, Liberia was founded by the American Colonization Society slash with the support of the United States government a little bit. Oh, you're talking about, and they would uh, send, they were trying to send people like back to Liberia essentially, right? Yeah, like back to Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sierra Leone was founded by the British Mm. with much the same Mm -hmm. uh, basic idea. So it's really interesting because you had the American and the British like (laughs) competing free colonies in Africa. Excuse me. And so what the British would do is when they would pick up slave ships Mm -hmm. Uh, they would execute, obviously, the people who were running the slave ships or send them to trial and they would die. Uh, and then they would just... there was Reroute no, them. Yeah, there was really no way for them to be like, okay, so you're from the Congo, you're from Mozambique, you're from... Yeah. You're all going to Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And so in the United States, uh, what we did was... There was the American Colonization Society, mm-hmm. and they would go around trying to convince free blacks to move to Liberia and get land there. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was that they did, some of them, mm-hmm. and they rolled up and they ran Liberia until 1980, even though they were like mm-hmm. 2 to 3% of the population. And it didn't work out great because they showed up and they were like, I'm a Christian and I speak English, so I'm better than all of these like Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, and it ended in a very bloody civil war. Right. But yeah, that was the United States' attempt at cre- at recreating sort of mm-hmm. the U.S. in Africa. Um, if you look at a Liberian flag. It's literally just the U.S. flag, but with one giant star instead of 50. Mm-hmm. And their capital is Monrovia. Yeah. Which is named after James Monroe, mm-hmm. who was the president at the time. And they have a Maryland county. <laughs> They're all divided up into counties. And one of the counties is just Maryland. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, like, Liberia was, like, the the most egregious example of Mm U S sort of colonialism in Africa. Right. Like after Liberia, the United States didn't have outright colonies Mm -hmm. like the Europeans did, but it had, you know, we were, we were about neo-colonialism or putting Mm -hmm. undue pressure on different governments or in the case of the Congo, just assassinating Patrice Lumumba, but I'm not going to get into that. Yeah. There's a, (laughs) there's plenty of history there too. Yeah. Um, so James G. Tune Bur- in on CNN tomorrow it's, <laughs> for the next chapter. <laughs> right? Oh, God. <laughs> and so it is, I don't know if people who are listening to this one, this is a long mm-hmm. episode, but James G. Yeah. Bernie has touched on like every. Yeah, he, he really, he's like one of, he's like the Kevin Bacon of. <laughs> He's the Kevin Two degrees of James Bernie. Seven degrees of James G. Bernie. Like, yeah, he he's the Kevin Bacon of nineteenth century America. This guy met everybody. That's the tagline. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Kevin Bacon of nineteenth century. So American Colonization Society, mm-hmm. um he in eighteen thirty, the University of Alabama is like, yo man, go meet with all of these people on the east coast 
we need uh, we need new teachers here at the University of Alabama. Mm-hmm. So he does that. He tours all over the Atlantic states. Um, what ends up happening is he goes above and beyond and he mm. starts recruiting people for the female seminary in Huntsville or like the Huntsville Female Academy. He recruits yeah. teachers for that. He recruits teachers because he wants to set up an infant school mm. in Huntsville. So like a pseudo kindergarten, like before the German model was really solidified and exported to the U.S. Mm-hmm. He was like, you should come teach our babies. Right. And so. Yeah, that's crazy. It's like. Uh, yeah. That's something. I mean, I think Huntsville does really well, but a lot of places in America don't have a great like early yeah education system which is crazy but it's so and we keep finding it's like oh it's so important you gotta yeah socialize kids super early and right and so james g bernie was kind of obsessed outside progressive (laughs) no no uh so that's true he He had some good ideas and in 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 action yeah so he kind of just rolled yeah I mean, yeah, so he was really into abolition. He was really into education. He had a few. And so he gets recruited by the ACS. And he's like, I'm going to go all over the country and try and convince black people to move to Liberia. Mm -hmm. Now, in October 1830, uh, while he's like rolling across the U.S., he goes back to Kentucky and stays with his friend Henry Clay and he's trying to convince Henry Clay to pass or to support a gradual emancipation law in mm, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Because Bernie's idea was if you could get some of the upper south states to adopt gradual emancipation, then that might start... Slowly get pressure on the deep south. Exactly. So he really wanted Kentucky and Virginia to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, Virginia came really close to passing a gradual emancipation law. But then what happened right after that was the Nat Turner revolt. Mm. So and they got all freaked out. Yes. And so then white people in the South lost their damn minds mm-hmm. in the 1830s and were like, we have to really stamp down. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of the 1830s is sort of the time period where everything changes in the South. And you go from this sort of like, well, OK, slavery is a necessary evil and we'll we'll introduce abolitionism someday and we should, you know, free people should have maybe this amount of freedom or et cetera. It's like after the Nat Turner, Turner rebellion, everyone's Mm -hmm. like, Nope, I don't, we're just gonna evil, more evil. We're just going to be more evil somehow Mm -hmm. coast to coast. And so, um, so he has a falling out with Henry Clay because Henry Clay is like, no, I can't, I can't introduce this. It's not the time period. It's not the time. We should do it later at a more suiting date. Mm-mm. And it's just, that's a thing you hear a lot. Yeah. Yeah. In all types. <laughs> exactly. All People types are like, like life and work and politics. I mean, yeah. Everyone's always like, I, I think something, this thing that would probably be good should happen but later when it's more convenient and it's like, mm, if you don't, if you don't do it now, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Like there's that, Definitely. there's that MLK quote where he's like, I don't like the, I don't like the moderate white mm. or 
not that he doesn't like him, but he's like the moderate white is of more damage to the movement than like the Klansmen because the Klansmen, mm-hmm. you know where you stand, and he's just like, all right, well, he doesn't want anything. He doesn't want any progress. But moderate white people are always like, we're always like, I don't know if there maybe, should be. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I agree in principle, but at a, at a more suiting suitable time. Mm. Except, you know, and so that's the thing that's going on. It's like, no, the gradual emancipation laws were not popular in Pennsylvania, New York, or mm. New Jersey when they passed. Mm. People were pissed. Yeah. But then they got used to it. And slavery sort of died out there. Right. Slowly. By the 1820s, it was done. Mm-hmm you know, 50 years later. And Bernie's like, we can do it here. And people are like, no, we can't. Yep. And so in 1831, he's like, look, I've made a life in Alabama. I've been here almost 15 something years. All my children were born here. I've making really good money. I'm a very prominent citizen, but I'm so disturbed by slavery that I want to move my family out of the deep South Mm -hmm. and into a free state where they can grow up with less corrupting influences. Mm. And so he sets out and he's like, I'm going to move to Jacksonville, Illinois. Um, in 18, that same time period though, he starts working for the ACS. He's trying, he's going all over Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Mm -hmm. Tennessee, and Arkansas. And he's seeing that, He's just becoming disillusioned because previously he had thought gradual emancipation was the best method Mm -hmm. and that people would support it. And then they would see clearly like, oh, yes, this is this is at some point you could say. Yeah. He was like, well, this is the most rational way to do it because it wouldn't completely upset the social like world and mm-hmm. you know but no one's hearing it anymore all the stuff that he thought all the stuff that people talked about in his youth had gone mm-hmm. at this point people in the deep south were like no slavery is going to be a permanent institution um and especially after the nat turner revolt right yeah this was like yeah a hot time for uh, reactionism to that exactly and so he's like, whatever, I'm going to go home and I'm going to, he's going to return to Huntsville and I'm just going to write for the local newspaper. And so mm-hmm. he comes home and he starts writing these really long, uh, impassioned sort of like, he makes the case for gradual emancipation. Yeah. And he comes trying to influence people through the media after going door to door. Exactly. Did not turn out probably. (laughs) Exactly. He was going church to church, knocking Mm -hmm. on doors, handing out pamphlets, talking to state legislatures. And everyone was like, that's trash. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to make my way into the hands of every reasonable man. Mm -hmm. And so he goes in and he just spends a lot of time really overestimating the reasonableness and faculties of like other white men, Mm -hmm. which I think is, and of the time period. And so he's just writing, just writing. And he, the first few are republished very widely. So mm-hmm. people across the South are going and reading this and they're like, this is trash. Mm-hmm. And so people are like writing back to the papers in Huntsville. They're writing to him. They're like, you're a brigand. Um, 
one of the things that comes out later, and this is from like 1836, but this is sort of like the, is people are like in all of his feelings, uh, in all of his feelings and associations, he is black though. He has the appearance of a white man. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's literally just saying like, maybe in 30 years they should be free and we should right. set that up now. And they're like, you are a traitor to the race. And they're just yeah. real mad. So and, he loses that job. <laughs> yeah. He, they, just, they quit publishing him. Yeah. After the seven articles go out, by the time he's ready to put up the eighth article, mm-hmm. the Huntsville Democrat is like, uh, no. Mm-hmm. So he moves back to Kentucky. Um, moves back to Kentucky to be with his father before his father dies in 1833. And so then he frees Michael finally, Mm. right? He's been talking the talk. Now he's going to finally walk the walk. So in 1834, uh, he frees Michael and there are other stories that are probably apocryphal of Bernie seeing enslaved people in really poor conditions Mm -hmm. and then purchasing them from their like owners and then uh, freeing them previously. Uh, There's one example where he was in Jackson County at a tavern or an inn there. And this older slave was like, Hey, I just recently converted to the Methodist church and my owner likes to get drunk and make me play the fiddle and sing all of these like songs about fornicating and mm-hmm. that goes against my religion and bernie was so moved by the man's mm-hmm. declaration of faith and like that probably didn't happen yeah but if it but if it did good on him mm-hmm. you know and other ones about like how he was in tennessee and he saw um a woman beating a female like a beating another woman like beating an enslaved woman mm-hmm. like a white woman and he went in and he was like what, what are you doing and the white woman was like this is my this is my husband's mistress and mm-hmm. you know she had a little like mixed kid and she was like i'm just getting mine in and bernie like supposedly purchased them and right. set them up somewhere and it's like maybe yeah. maybe not we don't really have yeah so it's just kind of like he does have a mythos that goes with him. Yeah. You know, like he's like George Washington and the dang cherry tree or whatever. Right. Like. <laughs> and so 1834 frees Michael uh, and Michael's whole family. So that's uh, two daughters, wife, son. He goes and he finds like an apprenticeship as a blacksmith for the son. And, you know, he starts paying Michael back wages with interest. Hmm. So that's actually, yeah, he's like, hey, man, thanks for being my friend for my whole life. Right. I owe you. Yeah. And so here's, yeah. So there was a mixed race girl mm-hmm. um, that the Bernies were also looking after. And I don't know. I don't know if maybe James, I don't know if maybe Bernie or one of his sons had a dalliance. And there was a kid, and or if he had just purchased her mm-hmm. with the intention of freeing her later in Kentucky, but he sends her to a boarding school in Ohio. Hmm. Yeah. So, I would really like to go and find some of the documents on that, so yeah. that we could like find that girl, 
and see who she became later in life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And so his dad dies, moves the family to Cincinnati, sets up his own uh, abolitionist newspaper. Uh, It's called The Philanthropist. Uh, In 1836, during the Cincinnati race riots, um, the white mobs go and burn Mm -hmm. down his press, and they start attacking black people and, like, murdering them just because, like, southern Ohio was nuts and like in Ohio at the time in a lot of states you had black codes mm. which basically were like black people aren't allowed to live here unless they have like a $500 bond and they have the guarantee of like two or more white men that they'll act accordingly and like yeah well it's just uh, piles of regulations and exactly lines and rules exactly so even if you could become even if you could escape slavery in the deep South mm-hmm. in a lot of the Midwestern states. So like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, um, and then even out West Oregon and Washington, there's a reason those places are so white. Mm-hmm. Right. And a bit, well, one of the big reasons is like massive amounts of European immigration, but the other one is they literally just blocked anyone else who would want to come in without having enough resources already. Mm -hmm. And so you saw a lot of like blacks, uh, new newly freed black people in Southern Ohio. And this created a lot of tension. Oh yeah. And so there were a series of race riots and they started targeting them. They targeted Bernie properties that he owned. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then the, the thing that I read earlier where he was like, you know, uh, in all his associates and feelings as black, etc. That was that was from placards, like wanted posters that like white mo- like people would hang up in Cincinnati really? talking about how huh. there was a hundred dollar reward for him in Kentucky and then this, that and the other. And mm-hmm. it's like trying to intimidate him. Um, so and. American Anti-Slavery Society recruits him. He moves to New York. Uh, he has actually a falling out with members of the American Anti-Slavery Society because the American Anti-Slavery Society was supporting women's rights. And that's... And he was a not... bridge too far. Yeah. Like, that's sort of the thing with... Um, that's one of the earliest sort of schisms in abolitionism. Is, really? Yeah. Is like, should women also get rights? And then a bunch of people were like, slavery is bad. And then there was this sort of like other current of thought where it's like, yeah, slavery is bad. And the patriarchy is also bad. And maybe women should vote and maybe women should hold office. And it was this more just like, no, I just said slavery was bad. Guys. Yeah. I don't know. Whether... Yeah. And My wife shouldn't be like getting ideas. Exactly. And so there was this sort of like massive schism in the early yeah. abolitionist movement hmm. uh, focused on that. And, and so Bernie didn't make it onto the right side of history on that one. And uh, in 1840, he runs for president as hmm. a member of the Liberty Party. He gets about 6,800 votes, moves to Michigan. Uh, his sons end up staying in Michigan. He like helps plan a new town down there. Hmm. In 1844, he runs again. It gets 2.3% of the vote. Uh, and probably cost Henry Clay the election because mm-hmm. that was the closest Henry Clay had ever come to becoming president. And then 
<laughs> stabbed it. Stabbed his old brother right in the back. Got him. And then in 1845, he fell off a horse and suffered paralysis mm. for the rest of his life. Um, he moved to... See, how old would he have been? When he... Yeah, he moved to an abolitionist compound in New Jersey. Oh, interesting. And, well, yeah. One of the other things, like, people were really into communes mm-hmm. at this time period. So you had, like, the Oneida community in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, other communes. And so this idea of like communal living and the rejection of money and rejection of capitalism and also like free love. Mm -hmm. Right. But some of the free love movement was like, we should have multiple partners. And some of the free love movement was like, I'm just gonna, I like my husband. So I'm gonna marry him. And so it was a very, it was the 1830s and 1840s were a very strange time period in American Mm. history. You had, like, the Mormons emerging. You had all of these religious revivals. You had sort of this mass reaction to industrialization. And then you also had abolitionism and the early women's rights movement. And a lot of those sort of, like, started interconnecting. Yeah, yeah. And so there were just, like, abolitionist compounds in New Jersey Hmm. where you could go out and if you were like, I'm against slavery and here's the proof... People would be like, all right, I guess you can live here. Right. And so he... That's interesting. Like alternative communities of all different types. Oh, yeah. There's a long American tradition of alternative planned communities. Mm -hmm. And so he moves out to one of these in uh, New Jersey and just lives out there for like 15 years, uh, suffering more deeper, deepening paralysis. Yeah. And so this man who had made his entire life and living by being outdoors you know they talk about every description of him talks about him being an amazing gardener and landscaper Mm. and farmer and he was a lawyer and he was good at writing and in his later life he couldn't speak and he had to make motions in order to get things or write things down and then his like ability to write started to suffer and he couldn't work outside anymore and he must have just been like just withered away yeah like honestly i think he died of a combination of old age and sadness Mm -hmm. and so well he definitely was no slouch like he was all (laughs) over the place yeah like james bernie met james bernie knew Maybe not the primary actors Mm -hmm. in American history, but he was all over the stage for the secondary actors. Mm -hmm. And he went everywhere and did as much as he could. And um, he spent a lot of time in Huntsville. And he's kind of this sort of connection to these national abolitionist movements Mm -hmm. that uh, existed in the United States. And that a lot of people probably don't realize or recognize like he helped lay out early Alabama and a lot of, and some of the ideas about slavery prior to the 1830s and early right, Alabama right. and it's sort of our connection to the wider nation. Mm-hmm. W I D E R wider. I wanted to make sure I've been talking for a while. So my mouth is, <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, wow, and it's uh, yeah, so it's a long tale of, uh, but it's all man, all over the place. And uh, Mike, Michael was freed in Kentucky. Yeah, 
So, do you have any background on, like, what happened to him, or? No idea. Yeah. Don't even know, like, I mean, he might have taken Bernie's last name. We know he would have been in. Yeah. yeah, We know he would have been in Mercer County, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And so, we could maybe go and look, see if there's good records. Uh, Mm -hmm. I would really also like to know what happened to that family. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And his uh, adopted daughter that was sent off to boarding school. In Ohio. Yeah. And then, um... One last thing. Two of his sons went and became Union generals in the Civil War. All right. And his third son was the lieutenant governor of Michigan during the Civil War. So he spawned some. Excuse me. Some some trifling characters himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, the Bernie family became very important in Michigan. And they kind of always were like, look at her dad. He's so great. <laughs> And some of them wrote about him, so I mean, yeah, lasting legacy. They did write some. But man, that was that was amazing. Thank you so much for all the work. That was uh, the, was this like two different long stints of research, or was this all kind of done in one chunk? Um, well, I mean, I'd already known since I guess like from the old stuff you did for the writing of the article. Did yeah, you like uh, have to do a lot of new legwork. I did new legwork in that I went and read and reread some biographies. Yeah. And I mean, there's stuff in there where he is supposedly like did some work with the Cherokee nation that we didn't even get to talk about mm-hmm. <laughs> and just, you know, and there's the whole thing with Squire, which like I said, can probably be its own episode. Oh, definitely. And yeah, like James Burney just has, um, had a really eventful life and did a lot of stuff here in Huntsville Mm -hmm. and the life that he lived here went on to influence who he became in the 1840s. And so is there a blog post on him too? No. Can people, so this is the only way you're going to find about James Bernie. Unless you you go to the Alabama encyclopedia. Yeah. You can go to the encyclopedia of Alabama, but it's not as detailed. Hmm. So I just, I really went all out. This is the definitive, <laughs> the definitive work on the burn. The um, there's also the Kevin Bacon of the 19th century. Kevin Bacon of the 19th century. That's what I think we should name the episode. Seven degrees is, um, of James, James Burney. I'm with it. Uh, <laughs> there's also, there's a book by his son that was written in like the 1870s mm-hmm. after the Civil War. Cause you know, he had enough spare time then <laughs> before then he was like, there's a war. Um, uh, there's Apostles of Equality, which is about, uh, James Burney and sort of his life and times and the early abolition movement, which was, I think, written by a judge from Huntsville. He had like a descendant living in Huntsville Hmm. that had like made it, made their way back down and became a judge down here for a while. Yeah. Rolled back through. Yeah, man. You know, it's Las Vegas. What do they call it? It's like a black hole. Like you can't yeah, really. Yeah, that's escape. what I tell people. <laughs> like you try to get away. You can move, <laughs> and then get a U-Haul to come back. Like <laughs> just leave some stuff here. Yeah. Yeah. We'll tune in next time for the the next episode. I don't know. I don't know what's up next, but you've been working on the play. Yeah. Got some some traction there. I'm we, very excited to. Oh yeah, we've uh, done a lot of. I've done a lot of stuff on the play. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, a lot of stuff on the play. Um, Are you still missing anything? Like, you need anybody to... Uh, we've got a lot of the roles. We have plans for some of them. Yeah. Is there anything you're still missing that you need to, like... 
I just shout out to just gotta want. finish doing. <laughs> I gotta like sit just gotta there. write this in a book. It'll be fine. Yeah, I gotta do that. I gotta finish writing a book. <laughs> 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 I got into like October, I think. <laughs> I, I gotta check my email. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll be back soon. Uh, but thanks again, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. It's always good stuff. I think this one was like two hours long. So this I is apolog- a long one. I apologize. We haven't had... This is going to be the longest episode ever. Really? Uh, I guess so. Well, I don't know. We probably started taping a little later, but... Yeah. So. Well, until next time. we might, Maybe we'll break this one up. for <laughs> Part one, part for two, babies. part four. <laughs> the Ballad of Ballad of Dreams Hunt's Villain is a podcast recorded at Spice Rack Studios in Huntsville, Alabama. You can check out John's blog with information from the podcast and more info at huntsvillain.wordpress.com and on Facebook under Hunt's Villain. The podcast is hosted and written by Mr. John O'Brien and co-hosted by Ben Job. Thank you to our donors and volunteers who are the sole supporters of Spice Radio. If you want to help support Spice Radio, go to spiceradiohuntsville.com and click Donate. And remember, you can find great local music and podcasts 24-7 at SpiceRadioHuntsville.com. Thanks for listening, and stay spicy.